as the um, first talk, full talk of the retreat, I'd like to try to do something a little different than I usually do by uh, bringing together uh, two different worlds that I teach in. Um, you know, this world here I teach in uh, the Dharma world, insight meditation, retreats. And the other is I am um, involved in training people to become chaplains, Buddhist chaplains who work in hospitals and prisons and places like that. And the teachings, the emphasis is a little different in these two different worlds, but there's a big overlap. Both are places where uh, we're addressing uh, suffering, human suffering, and some of its most fundamental aspects. So I want to give a talk that kind of brings these two different two aspects, the, uh, these two aspects together a little bit <clears throat> for you. And the hope is that in doing that, that uh, um, it kind of sets the context for this nine-day retreat, that it um, pro- provides you a little bit sense of what we're doing here um, in a way that hopefully is supportive of you. you find your, hopefully you'll find yourself in this talk and it'll support you and guide you a little bit as you follow your path during these days. And uh, the talk has basically three parts. <clears throat> And the first is a little introduction that uh, I'm going to uh, offer you a simple sentence from the Buddha. And uh, I think it's a very profound teaching and valuable and provocative to carry with you and reflect on to remember this. And um, if you remember nothing about the talk except for that, then the talk is successful. So I'll do that first and then we'll see about the rest. And then uh, the second part will be... um, to offer you um, a perspective for looking at the human condition that uh, chaplains will sometimes use when they're engaging with people who are in crisis uh, to try to understand what's going on with them, what are the important issues that they're involved in that uh, uh, has to be addressed and met. And what you'll see is that they, they kind of look at the human condition a little bit differently then uh, we might do it in Buddhism, where we have kind of set ways of, you know, usual ways of looking at it. And then I would like, the third part is I'd like to uh, talk about three different ways in which um, the practice that we're doing here uh, works, or how it unfolds, or three different aspects of it. And, uh, and, and doing that hopefully bring the chaplaincy kind of approach of looking at the human condition uh, uh, into contact with the, you know what we're actually practicing here. So that's kind of the plan, so you know where we're going. And uh, we'll see if that's what happens. So uh, the, uh, the uh, quote I'd like to offer you, the Buddha uh, in one passage says, said that whatever you frequently think about, becomes the inclination of your mind. Whatever you think about frequently becomes the inclination of your mind. And uh, another way of saying it is whatever you regularly, habitually think about and review and obsess about, that becomes your disposition. Um, And you carry that disposition around. You carry that habit way of formation around. And so... You know, if you are regularly complaining, that's the regular activity of the mind, then uh, it sets up a habit formation or sets up a disposition where you're more inclined then to, uh, 
to complain in the future. And it's, less, it's more difficult to let go of that disposition than it is to let go of a single thought. So if you have enough momentum going behind these thoughts and regularity, then, um, then you end up with something that's more deeply entrenched. So if you regularly and frequently think about um, um, you know, anything, so, but if you think regularly about kindness and generosity, that becomes an incl- inclination of the mind. And so it's a very interesting teaching and one of the ways I think it's interesting is not that you have to be a certain way, but it's interesting because um, uh, have you tracked what your mind usually doing? Have you tracked what you're re- usually regularly thinking about? What's the top three tunes that you have? Concerns. What gets repeated over and over again for you? And uh, are you aware of the top regular things your mind is thinking about? And if you're aware of it, uh, what degree of responsibility do you take for that? Do you feel like you're just kind of along for the ride and your mind can think whatever it wants? Or do you feel like you have some choice to be made about what your mind engages in, what you think about and, and involved in? And certainly Buddhist practice uh, emphasizes that we have a capacity to take some responsibility for the direction of our mind, the formation of our mind, the inclination, disposition of our mind. And in fact, Buddhist spiritual path has a lot to do with the slow and gradual ways in which we transform our disposition so that we are disposed uh, in a new way, in a way that's um, you know, beautiful and helpful and freeing and generous. Um, and so it's less about you know, some dramatic experience or some great you know, single teaching or single final understanding that's going to do you, you know, make you, you know, good forever. As it has a lot to do with the slow transformation of your disposition, of your inclination, of the, how your mind is formed and directed. And so to begin looking at that. So that's the kind of the introduction to the talk is, uh, you know, what does your mind do? What is your regularly patterns of uh, behavior in your mind and, and what degree of responsibility will you take for that? The, um, so in the chaplaincy world, the chaplains are, uh, you know, they're one, of the, one of the interesting professions to have in our society because uh, a chaplain is someone who, nowadays in hospitals is supposed to offer interfaith spiritual care to people, patients who are in the hospital. And, um, and so whatever the spiritual religious background of the hospital patients is, the chaplain is supposed to meet them. They're not supposed to proselytize their own religion, but rather uh, come and, and, um, and be supportive and help, uh, help bring forth the resources of someone's own spiritual tradition in the service of their healing and their well-being in the hospital or the prison or wherever it might be. And hospitals and prisons are usually places of crisis. People are there because of some crisis, some, something goes on. That's quite disruptive. Uh, the fabric of their ordinary life has often been uh, disrupted in a dramatic way. Often their sense of self, their understanding of who they are, who they are in relationship to their family, their, their community, their work has been disrupted. And many of the normal sources of meaning in their life uh, aren't so, uh, sometimes are not available when you're in crisis in a hospital and sick and in a serious way. And sometimes, as you probably know, some of you have maybe had the experience of having to go to the emergency or go with someone to the emergency and, 
And, you know, the whole, not only can individual lives be upturned suddenly, but a whole family or community's life can be turned upside down from one moment to the next in the kind of crises that can happen. So in terms of meeting the heavenly messengers of what we say in Buddhism, sickness, old age, and death, um, hospitals are a place to meet them in spades. And chaplains, that's kind of their job, is to be willing to have to meet suffering, but to not just meet it, but to meet it uh, with a capacity to be open to it, to receive it, to not uh, be distressed, not be horrified, but willing to stay present and open to it in a situation where many people find it quite, quite difficult to stay open and receive and, and be present for the feelings, the emotions, the thoughts, the issues that are going on. Um, so, <clears throat> but to do their work of chaplaincy, chaplains need to kind of look more, more deeply into what the conditions are of the person in crisis. Uh, and try to understand what are the real issues that are coming to the forefront. Because, you know, sometimes when someone, you know, is going through a crisis, like say it's a medical crisis, it's not just a matter of the medical issue, but because their life has been turned upside down, they, um, some of the deep existential issues of their life come to the forefront. Sometimes in a stronger way than almost any other time. And people's, uh, you know, especially if they're dying or close to dying or they've lost their capacity, many of their capacities they've had they're used to, uh, many of the things that they've relied on for their, their well-being, their sense of meaning and purpose in life, their, even in their identity and who they are, has been sometimes ripped apart for them. So chaplains have to understand this and have to kind of understand what is it that's beyond the medical condition that's going on in the heart of this person? And how do you meet that? How do you? And so, uh, in the chaplaincy world, then, when they look at that kind of suffering, um, they um, they sometimes talk about looking for, looking at three different areas of people's lives. And the first area has to do with <clears throat> the um, uh, uh, the person's self worth sense of value, a personal value. Is there, a, do the, uh, there's, there's understanding that everyone needs to have a sense of being worthy, being valuable in some way or other. And in Buddhist circles, it gets a little bit dicey to say, talk about this because sometimes it's kind of a too facile appreciation, understanding of no self. And so self-worth, you know, smells of, oh, oh, we're going in the wrong direction. But if you look at the statue of the Buddha here, you know, it's been, uh, you know, this is a, a you know, just, uh, it's a beautiful statue of a man, a person and the woman over here, Prajnaparamita, that sit upright in the most dignified ways you can imagine, without conceit, without being puffed up, but you know, without being depressed, without being hesitant, without fully inhabiting their being in a way that maybe some of us would identify as being dignified, having a sense of inherent sense of worth or value. They're not shying away from life. They don't feel like they don't deserve to be here or they have to be self-effacing and kind of be a little kind of, you know, <clears throat> humbly no self. Um, but there's also no assertion. There's no claiming to be someone either, hopefully. Uh, but they're fully there, so a sense of dignity and value. And if you remember, the Buddha uh, came from a warrior caste. And then the classic idea of a warrior was someone who had great dignity and their sense of dignity and self-respect was a very important part of their life. 
So the, the, the quest for self-respect and personal dignity and sense of worth is very important. And so has that been disrupted? As people have that, is that an issue that needs to be sorted out? Connected to that often is the idea of a sense of belonging. Uh, do we belong someplace? Do we have a sense of community? Or do we feel alienated or lost or isolated? And uh, this is, uh, can be a source of tremendous pain for people to feel disconnected, to feel like they're worthless. And you can imagine like in a hospital situation where uh, the usual source of value, personal value, if someone's value comes from their work, well, they can't, you know, the work's disappeared while they're in the hospital. Their status, you know, you're there in this, you know, kind of, they, they call it a gown, but, you know, you know, it's, you know, your glorious tush is revealed to the world. In this half gown you have to wear. And so whatever wonderful status you had, you know, maybe you had, uh, that disappears in this wonderful half gown that you have to wear and you're laying there and people are prodding you. And um, so, so the usual sources of respect and meaning sometimes go away and it's quite challenging for some people. Some people don't have it even begin to begin with, even before they come to the hospital. And it's a tremendous source of suffering. And so uh, what's, how do we find, how do we support people? Where do they, where do they find a sense of, of worth, of value, a sense of belonging? Part of this also is understood to be that, um, that who you are as a person, your issues, your life, your concerns, um, is something that other people uh, will witness and listen to and hear and respond to with some empathy and some understanding. Without that sense of human connected and rela- re- sense of being in relationship, it's very hard for people. And again, when you look at the Buddhist uh, kind of, uh, if you're very simplistic, look at Buddhism, Buddhist teachings, sometimes it can be interpreted to mean that you shouldn't care about anything. You're supposed to let go, let go, let go, and wanting to be in relationship, wanting to have things, somehow that's just another, another form of attachment. And the idea that you, 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 know, you should just let go, let go, let go, sometimes um, uh, brings people to not appreciate the strong need of the heart, the strong need of the psyche to be connected, to be in relationship, to be valued, to be seen, to be heard. One of the great forms of suffering that I've seen um, as a teacher, because I interview, meet with lots of people, and you know, you know, a lot of what we do as teachers is meet people in their crisis and their challenges. So we see a lot of suffering. But one of the great sufferings that I've, you know, I've seen is that uh, when is usually for adults, in adults, but for adults who, as children, were not seen, didn't feel seen. Not to be seen as a child is almost the same as not being loved. And there's something about in the formation of a psyche, a child's psyche and mind, that uh, something goes awry if they're not properly seen and loved by their parents or the people, adults around them. And uh, it's a great struggle to grow up that way and, and, uh, and then to deal with that as an adult. Uh, the practice can help, certainly. But this idea of being seen, you know, it's a strong need we have. Sense of belonging, sense of meaning, sense of value. Um, so, so a sense of value. So this next, next kind of category, there's three, that the chaplains sometimes use to kind of assess or understand who they're talking to, is, is um, so it's a little bit different than a sense of belonging or a sense of, of personal worth. The second category is, 
Is there, uh, is there a sense of meaning and purpose in the person's life? Is there, uh, is there a life about something? Uh, and it doesn't have to be some great meaning like you're doing something, but the meaning, some people, their, their meaning of their life comes from not from what they do, but from how, how they are in the world. Uh, there's a little bit neurosis in our society, I think, around finding the right career, the right thing they're supposed to do that's going to make you. And, and, um, and some people, that's not what their life is about. But their sense of meaning comes not from what they do, but how they are. That they're kind, they're generous, they're supportive of people, they're compassionate. That somehow they come into the world in a way that is supportive and helpful for the immediate situation they're in. They don't have any need to have the great successful career or any career at all. But still, and some people do, they have some, their meaning comes from having, in, engaging in some activity, um, some endeavor with their life, and, um, and, uh, and it becomes a very important source of what supports their life. Um, and again, uh, in Buddhist circles, because of this emphasis on non-attachment and letting go, sometimes we overlook the idea that people do have a strong, the heart, the mind, the psyche, the the structure of the way our psychology kind of operates, that, um, that there's a kind of a need for meaning, sense of purpose in, in our lives. So does a person have that? Or has it been taken away or lost? Some people have a sense of meaning in their life and then if something changes. They either uh, get disenchanted with that or they see it has no meaning or they've been betrayed by someone or something in their society, in their community. So what we gave them meaning before no longer has meaning for them or they feel discouraged by it. And that can be a great, you know, really important issue to look at. The third uh, kind of category that chaplains will look at is um, the area of reconciliation. So this has to do with uh, interpersonal relationships. Does a person... uh, 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 need to reconcile themselves with some other person. There's some kind of uh, healing need to happen in relationships. And, uh, you know, uh, this is particularly poignant uh, as people are dying. Some people can't really die well or can't really feel settled about their own dying until they do some, uh, do some unfinished business with someone who they, maybe they haven't seen for 10 or 20 years. Um, and sometimes there's a great effort is made to go find long estranged relatives or children or parents so they can have the final conversation and ask for forgiveness or say thank you or do something um, because of the strong need that the heart has to reconcile, to finish, to resolve um, the issues of what's going on. And so sometimes it ta- that reconciliation work, that healing work takes the form of forgiveness. Sometimes asking for forgiveness, sometimes offering forgiveness is important. Sometimes what's required is to make amends and, um, you know, to, uh, it's very interesting. I find sometimes the, this work of this, sometimes very deep work of meditation practice, it kind of goes through layers of our mind, to use a metaphor. And some of the layers we come to sometimes are, are the layers where things are unresolved in our life. And so we have to somehow work through that unresolved layer. And, so, and, and if you come to, a, sometimes, uh, what's required is not sitting anymore quietly and just, you know, letting go, letting go, letting go. What's required is to get off your cushion and um, maybe even leave the retreat, but to talk to us first. <laughs> and, or maybe you can wait until the end. But, um, and go find someone and 
apologize or make amends because you can't really go much further in your spiritual life until you've kind of taken care of some interpersonal or personal work that has to be done. Um, and I say that I think it's very important because I think the message also sometimes is not given here. I know John sometimes gives the beautiful story of uh, coming to that point in his practice when he was practicing in India and Ramdas uh, realizing that and sending him all the way back to Kentucky from India so he could spend how many days with your dad? Three days with his dad. And then you went back to India. So, you know, that's what he had to do. So, um, um, so to reconcile, to resolve issues in relationships is a really important thing. And, um, you know, some people, you know, again, to use the example when people come to their, de- uh, you know, their deathbed, uh, so for some people, it's the relationships that are the paramount thing to deal with and resolve and meet, uh, not to spend the last two or three days of your life on retreat. You know, just, okay, just, if I can just, you know, sit and follow my breath for three days, that would be a great way to die. It is, but, but, you know, it might be that there's more important things or more pressing things for you to do. I remember once, uh, some years ago, many years ago, I was going to visit... Um, there was a man in, who was dying, a friend of mine who was dying. And um, the last time I saw him, before I went on vacation, he was in his living room in a hospital bed, and he was kind of like in and out of, seeming like coma, or just, I, I thought, oh, this, this, he's about to die any time now. And, um, and so I, I went away for a couple of weeks. So I came home, I uh, came back, and so I went to his house, and um, I knocked on the door, and, oh, and, looked, and no one answered. So I knocked again and no one answered. So I looked around so that all the curtains were pulled down. And I thought, oh no, I've come too late. He's died. So I stood there for a while, knocked again, stood there for a long time. And then s- suddenly the door swung open and he's standing there and he says, Gil, I'm so happy to see you. And he was, you know, he, I couldn't believe it. You know? I thought the last time I saw him, he was like in his last breath. He was still dying, but somehow they changed his medication and he was okay for, you know, got better for a little while. And um, so he, I came in, he invited me in, and within five minutes of being in his house with him, uh, he sat me down on the living room couch with his wife and I was doing um, uh, couples counseling. And being somewhat naive back then, I thought, you know, this guy's dying what, why are they doing couples counseling, marital counseling now? I mean, <laughs> is this, this is not the time for that, I thought. <laughs> but of course, they had to kind of sort through something. Uh, I wouldn't say before he, had to, before he could die, but because he was well enough, this was the important issue that he had to address, was some, something about his relationship with his wife. Had, they had to work something out. Not sit and follow his breath and let go. So I offer these, these kind of categories, the areas, general areas, because we sit here on retreat and, um, and there's all these different currents of our life that come through here. Um, the, you know, we have, this, we have uh, lives that have the currents of our society and our culture that come through, the values and sense of meanings and purposes of our culture and society and what we think is important. We have um, the currents of our family of origin and our ethnicity, and many things that come through. We have our own personal history and life and our own dispositions and our own gifts and our own situation. 
And there's so many different things that, you know, are weaving, it's weaving itself to create the life we have. And this fabric that makes up our life, sometimes uh, the fabric gets torn and uh, certain threads get pulled out and it's not whole anymore, it's not complete. And so we don't feel settled, we're not at peace with ourselves anymore. And so we sit here and try to be, we talk about the simple practice of just sitting here and just being. And it's meant to be a very simple practice, but um, the reason why it's not so easy is that our lives are not so simple. And so all the different threads and currents and fabrics of our life in various ways comes through. And one of the primary things that comes to the surface sooner or later is the issues in our life which are unresolved or uh, where we're, uh, places where we're stuck or places where there's, uh, in Buddhist terms, we, we say where there's suffering. But if we ch- keep talking about suffering as we do here in, in the Buddhist circles, we, eventually we all go, kind of go numb around the world, word. Like, what is, it's just such a general word, it doesn't mean anything after a while. But it's kind of this umbrella term, a general kind of category to cover all, some of these things that I just talked about and that chaplains are concerned about. And so when you sit here, on the retreat, uh, uh, some of these issues are going to play itself out for you. Some of the, your, the issues of your worth and value, and um, and so some of you perhaps, you know, have have lost your job, and so not just the suffering of losing your job, but it's a suffering of of uh, you know who are you in the society if you don't have a job and don't not a contributing member of society? What's your worth and where's your value? Some of you perhaps uh, are here because of some illness that you're dealing with, or maybe you're... And so uh, that has disrupted the fabric of your life. And so it challenges you in many, many ways. It challenges you in relationship to other people. It puts sometimes stress and strains in relationships. It can put, it can put um, uh, tremendous stress in your self-identity and who you are and, and uh, your sense of purpose and value in your life. So there's many ways that you know, these things come together. So the unresolved issues of life tend to come up here. And one of the important needs we have is to see this, to be present for it, to recognize it. It's helpful sometimes for other people to do it, to hear us and empathize with us and really feel like we're witnessed and valued for where we are and what the situation is. To tell our story uh, to someone is important. But uh, on retreat, you know, the, you know, you know, the teachers are not going to spend two or three days hearing your story. This is not the place for full, full-fledged, you know, the whole story of your life. It's valuable to do to someone to have that time, someone to listen and be with you. Um, but here, the, the on retreat, uh, the, the, the really the important person who's supposed to really hear and see you is yourself. So can you stop long enough to really start noticing what's going on here? Who am I? What's happening here? And what's the issues here? If we're too facile about calling it suffering and we're supposed to let go, we might not take the time to really listen and hear deeply. What is here? What's really going on here? Uh, as we're feeling uncomfortable and, and feeling somehow str- struggling, to listen. Not so much analyze and think, but to get really quiet so you can feel your way in, listen your way in. What are, these, what are the quieter, deeper voices? What's the real issue here that's going on? What's happening here? And for example, I've, I've been on retreat, and maybe this is maybe a kind of a small thing or a trite thing, I don't know, maybe not. 
And something as simple as trying to get concentrated. And uh, I've sat down to get concentrated and have this glorious sitting and be happier ever after. And uh, it doesn't work. I don't get concentrated. And that's frustrating, right? So I try some more and I get frustrated and I try some more. And, and um, you know, it should be an easy thing, right? But there are times when my effort to get concentrated, if I was really honest or really listened deeply, was not just some simple idea to get concentrated is a good idea, but I had invested my identity in my sense of value and my worth in my spiritual life and success in my spiritual life. And the frustration was not simply the frustration of, of, of um, not getting concentrated, it was frustration that this deeper sources of meaning and value and sense of belonging and purpose that I had invested in the sitting, that's what was being frustrated. And so, of course, it got charged for me. And as it got charged, you know, it was kind of, then, you know, it got more muddled for it. And because I was, you know, not paying attention to these deeper currents, I just thought I had to just let go more, or just, I had to just kind of, kind of, you know, just try harder, or, you know. And what was needed was not to try harder, but to relax more deeply into the depth of what's happening, the fullness of what's happening, the richness of the fabric and the tapestry of what's happening. Again, not so much by thinking, but the reflection can be important to way to find your way forward. But to again listen, what what deeper? What's going on? What's a deeper concern? What's a deeper issue that's being expressed here? That's important here. And without that, sometimes finding that out, it's going to stay restless. That part of you will stay restless, and the restlessness will keep your you restless. And so it's hard to get settled. But if you can feel your way, relax your way, rest your way into deeper into what is the issues here? What's going on here for me? What's really important? Uh, then sometimes it's easier than to get settled and relaxed. So part of this has to do so. So these, I think that these issues um, like this play itself out, uh, you know, even in the biography of the Buddha, the story of the Buddha. And uh, I wanted to offer you a a um, alternative interpretation of the Buddha story of the Buddha leaving home. Some people are quite disturbed by this, you know, deadbeat dad who, you know, has a child and as soon as he has a kid, leaves and uh, and goes off and becomes a renunciant. And, you know, how could, that seems pretty, pretty awful thing to do. You know, leaving the family behind, dropping out. It's hard to understand the context of India, ancient India, 2,500 years ago. It's so different than our, our context of our society that it's not really fair for us to judge it in our terms. But here's an alternative interpretation. As the myth is told, the Buddha uh, uh, was, lived a very protected life. His father didn't want him to see the suffering of the world and so kept him in, uh, in palaces that were beautiful and luxurious, provided him with all the pleasures that a young man could want, and, um, and so lived an isolated life, a protected life, a disconnected life, a life that was not really, you know, engaged with life, didn't really know life. How can you know life if you don't know death? How can you know life if you don't know sickness and old age? How can you not know, know how can you know life if you don't understand and have contact with, with sickness and the struggles of people around you and your own struggles. 
if you're pampered and taken care of and protected all the time, it doesn't work. And so at some point, you know, at the great age of 26, he was pampered for that long. Imagine that kind of life. And um, somehow he stumbled, you know, went outside the palace walls and he stumbled across these existential situations that all of us have to face, sickness, old age, and death. And it was a shock for him. And in and and uh, and part of what he saw uh, in, in that shock state is he saw a renunciant who was had a very calm, peaceful demeanor. And when he asked about that person, he was explaining this is someone who who has you know exploring the existential issues of life and trying to come to terms with them. And so. With that, he decided to leave this protected life he had. And to my interpretation is that in doing so, he didn't leave the world, he entered the world. He had already left the world. He'd been been kept out of the world. And in becoming a renunciant, it was the only way in India of his time that uh, he could actually enter into the world in a full, complete way. And I say a courageous way. He chose to go into the the plains of northern India which, and engage with all strata of society in a way that he hadn't before, all the different conditions of life, and to see it, to engage in it, and the process of doing that to come to some deeper understanding for himself. I can imagine that uh, this was a courageous thing to do. I don't think of it as something you know, that was disconnecting with life. For me, in my interpretation, it was a way of connecting with life. And, um, and he lived a full life, a very meaningful life, uh, a dignified life, in, in, uh, in insisting that he had to come to terms and deal with these things and not to live a comfortable life anymore. And I think that's true for many of you in your own way. Uh, I imagine some of you also, that uh, something happens at some point where you just can't anymore continue uh, life as usual. And so, you know, you have, maybe courageously or maybe, not, maybe there's no courage invol- at all involved, but there's no other choice. Uh, but, you know, this, to now, now is the time to look and to engage in something deep. So perhaps, as you sit here, um, uh, if it should happen, maybe it won't happen at all, but, but uh, you start having struggles, difficulties. Listen more deeply to yourself. You're, you're a valuable and very important person, and, and the movements and currents and fabric of your life and your mind and your heart are very important. And so here's a chance to stop and listen. What is going on here? And then, the, and so then we, and that stopping to listen is the first of the three trainings that I want to switch now to the third part of the talk, which has to do with you know, three aspects of the training of practice or what the practice is about. And so there's three aspects. And these is, uh, I call them knowing the mind, training the mind, and freeing the mind. And at different times, in different ways, these, one of these different themes is what's, the, what's called for. Sometimes what's needed in practice is to really spend time getting to know ourselves, getting to know the mind, getting to know the heart. That's the task at hand. Sometimes the task at hand is to train the mind. We have this amazing mind, amazing heart, that's malleable and flexible. It's a process, it's not a thing. 
And it's something we can shape and change and develop and grow and unfold. And, you know, we don't have to leave, you know, just leave the mind as it is. And so uh, Buddhist training classically functions on the idea that, yes, you can change your disposition. You could change your mind. You can develop it. You can develop skills. And then, uh, you know, the fourth, the third aspect, uh, sometimes we come to, what's important for us, the phase of our practice, is to let go, to free the mind, to release the mind, the heart, to have the heart released. It's important to be a little bit sensitive that there's different phases of people's practice. So, you know, if you're to get too idealistic about the freeing part, you could be trying to free yourself before you're ready, (laughs) you know, and then you get frustrated. You know, I'm going to sit here and get enlightened, you know, in this retreat, and that's what this retreat's going to be about, get enlightened. And it could be that this retreat is only about the first step, only about getting to know yourself, because you don't really know yourself so well, uh, so deeply. There's a story of um, the Buddha was meditating in a grove of trees and at a kind of pleasure park in India, his time, and these, uh, the local uh, young noble uh, men and women came um, to the park for a picnic. And, um, and they had their picnic and they all, they all came with their husband and wives, the noble men and women, young ones, young, except for one young noble man who came with a courtesan because I guess he wasn't married or something. And, um, and so maybe she was kind of a low-class courtesan because of the story, how it unfolds. And uh, maybe not. But anyway, so she, um, uh, so that after they had their picnic and frolicked around, they all took naps, siestas. When they woke up from the siesta, uh, the courtesan was gone, and so were all their jewels, the jewelry they were wearing. So they started running through the park, the grove, the forest, whatever, looking for this courtesan. And instead of her, they came across the Buddha. And so they said to the Buddha, have you seen a woman? (laughs) Have you seen a woman? And the Buddha said, sitting there in meditation under a tree, I guess, and looked up at them and he said, probably pretty calmly, he said, what would you rather find? A woman or yourself? So they all sat down. (laughs) <laughs> and then they got teachings from him. So what would you rather find? You know, you fill in the blank. A man, a woman, a career, wealth, status. What would you rather find? Or would you rather find yourself? So getting to know ourselves is a really powerful thing to do. And it's, uh, it's really good when we think about the getting to know ourselves part of mindfulness, it's really, really closely akin to what mindfulness is in its essence. It's just getting to know. Because getting to know is not the same thing as getting to judge. Getting to know is not the same thing as, as getting to fix what's there. Getting to know is kind of like being a naturalist who goes into nature and doesn't interfere with what's going on, what the naturalist is studying, but just studies and watches as an observer. If the mountain lion attacks the deer, that might be distressing for the naturalist, but the naturalist doesn't interfere. That's part of nature to study, to understand how nature works, what goes on, the ecosystem, the ecology of how all this works. So the same thing for us. A big part of the practice is to take the time 
the generous time, to be generous with ourselves and discover what is here. Not to be ahead of ourselves, not to leapfrog beyond ourselves, to get someplace, to get concentrated, to get enlightened, to get the insight, to do something. But just, just relax. What's here? What are the things I regularly think about? What am I feeling? What's going on in my body? What's my breath like? So rather than getting concentrated in the breath, you can almost do the same thing, but just getting interested to get familiar. How does my breath feel? I spend a lot of time getting familiar with my breathing because it's really amazing. Just after all these years, I'm amazed by how my breath changes and shifts and does this and that. And, and you know, I go and live my life, do what I do, and I sit down to meditate. And lo and behold, I'm not, my breath is a little different than it was an hour or two hours before. It's held in different ways. And so I get to sit there and familiarize myself with the breathing and how it is. And, and it's, I just find it very interesting just to get the process of discovery as opposed to the process of, oh no, I'm holding my breath a little bit tight. I've been a meditation teacher for 20, 30 years and I should have this really deep, relaxed, full California breath. <laughs> You know, that's kind of cool and spiritual and, you know, I'm not there yet and I feel it's tight in my chest still and, you know, you know, this is rather embarrassing and I certainly don't want to tell a whole group of people like this. And, and um, so I can take that route or I can take the route and say, well, so this is how it is now. Let me study. Let me discover what this kind of breath is like. Your mind is agitated and you have trouble getting settled in meditation. So get curious. What is an agitated uh, mind like? What's, my, what's agitating my mind? What's happening here? Let me get to know it. Not necessarily the, the themes and details of what you're thinking about, but the ecology, the ecosystem of an agitated mind. Where do you feel the agitation in your body? What emotions comes with the agitation? Um, how much energy is with the agitation? Um, just kind of kind of curious and feeling your way and sensing your way in, listening your way in. What is here? What is here? And for some people, it's a relief to practice only discovery, only getting to know. The relief is because then you don't have to fix it. You don't have to judge it. And it's a very respectful thing to do, to just listen to yourself deeply, to get to know it. I think, as I said earlier, we all have this need, I think, to be heard and listened to it in some deep way. And so here we can offer, here at this retreat, it's a beautiful place to offer that to ourselves and be quiet so we can listen more deeply. And one of the ways, you know, to allow the mind to get quiet and still is so you can listen more deeply. But just to know what's going on, so to know the mind. And just to know, the emphasis on knowing and discovery and familiarity changes the inner landscape in a powerful way. Uh, if you're like me, <clears throat> I can't, I'm quite capable of go about my life doing all kinds of wonderful things or not so wonderful things and get, be completely caught up in what I'm thinking about what I'm doing that the, there's no difference between me and my thinking. I am my thinking for all practical purposes. I mean, like I'm not even, I'm not even around anymore. I'm just thinking, <laughs> doing my thing. And... Um, and, you know, and my thinking can have so much authority and so much meaning and, and um, you know, and it's the, certainly the right way of seeing the world. 
whatever, judging myself, whatever. But then there's this very miraculous thing that the mind is capable of doing, which is stepping back and being aware that I'm thinking. Oh, Gil, you're thinking about something. You're thinking about whatever. And there's a world of difference between being enmeshed in what you're thinking about versus stepping back and knowing that you're thinking. And an interesting way to do this is to, is to step back enough to know that you're thinking, say, you probably had your top theme today. I don't know what it was. But uh, let's say, politely, it's relationships. You know, maybe it was lusting after someone. But we'll call it relationships because that covers a bigger territory. So you were involved with relationships, thoughts. Chances are pretty high. So relationships, thoughts, this and that. And so, you know, you can actually, to study, be interested, what is it like when you get lost in that and you're enmeshed in it? What's that like? So it's hard to study when you're enmeshed, but when you come out, you can look back a little bit and remember what it's like. And then what is it like to be not enmeshed, but to know that you're having relationship thoughts? What's that like? Be curious. That's part of this discovery process. What's it like? What is it like to use awareness to be aware of what's in the present moment? Be curious. What is it? What is it to be aware? And how does it change things? Just to be aware of something. And so then you can take it one step further. You can say, "Oh, I'm having relationship thoughts," and then you can find yourself. You, you say it, and then you get pulled back into that pretty strongly, maybe, or you're kind of churning away at relationship thoughts. So then you kind of say to yourself, maybe really loud, in your mind, silently, "I am having relationship thoughts." If you really want to get into it, if you're really stuck in your thoughts, sing it. And, um, you know, just have a nice little tune. I am having relationship thoughts. <laughs> and, and after a while, you'll start feeling you can't quite, you know, you can't, you're a little bit separated from those thoughts. You're not so enmeshed. You're kind of like a little bit pulled back or separated or detached or unattached or you can't quite take it seriously. Especially if you if you go on to the song more and more, you know. After a while, you know this is ridiculous, <laughs> and this is really good medicine for sometimes. Um, and you might think this is silly, what I'm telling you, but um, what did you remind me doing today? <laughs> you know, maybe this is you know better than the alternative of some of your minds. Which is, you know, I, I don't know if you guys, but I've been quite capable of spending whole periods of time the first day of retreat. Uh, lost in thought, and you know they ring the bell, and it, where am I? So hopefully it's not. So 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 this whole discovery process, who, what, getting to know yourself, is a really important thing. And part of the getting to know yourself is to listen deeply, to listen quietly, not this, not just the surface chatter, not just what your the themes of your thoughts are, but what's driving your thoughts, what's underneath them. Can you listen? Can be curious? Can you wonder? What's there? And then to explore, what, is it, what happens when I start using my awareness? Awareness is an amazing thing because it's not an object. It's not a thing. It morphs and changes and changes its nature. And so much, you know, it's not a single thing. And so as you get curious, you know, what are the changing and shifting uh, qualities of awareness as I use awareness in my mindfulness? Sometimes awareness can be very close in like a microscope. Sometimes awareness can be quite expansive and open, like a great open sky that can hold it all. 
Sometimes awareness can, you can use your awareness to feel like you're really pulled back and whatever the issue is far away. And sometimes you can be, use awareness to get completely inside the experience and be one with it. Awareness is a fascinating tool. And so be curious, how's awareness now? So this first stage of practice is to study the mind. And part of that learning to study the mind is also learning um, to leave yourself alone. Don't try to fix, don't try to judge. Um, Be very generous and just open and receptive and hear what's there. The second uh, aspect of practice is this training the mind. So we can train ourselves to be more equanimous. We train ourselves to be less reactive and caught up in what we see. And it's a slow training. It's not easy because of the habits. But we can slowly begin letting go, perhaps, of some of the reactivity and fix-its and and just come in here and try to just be more, um, just be, uh, rather than trying to become. The, um, but we can also train ourselves in things like um, relaxing. Um, you can uh, focus on, remember, that the really important aspect of being on retreat and meditating is to be relaxed. You can't really meditate if you're tense. And it's really helpful to spend time uh, seeing what can you relax can you relax your shoulders, your belly? Can you relax <clears throat> the, you know, I, I call it the thinking muscle. Um, the place, some place inside where you think or where you project those images. If you really feel your way into the source of, or the place where those images or thoughts are, sometimes you can feel that there's, there's tension or pressure in there or a deep weariness and tiredness from all those years of churning away in your thoughts. And so you can feel your way in, you can train yourself to soften, relax the thinking mind. So relax, take it easy. It's a training, not necessarily easy, but it can be done. We train ourselves in becoming concentrated. We train ourselves in learning to let go. And in retreats like this, you'll get 10,000 chances to let go of something you're caught by, something you're thinking about. And that's a lot of times to practice letting go. Each of those times, it's not going to do you much good. <laughs> but the cumulative effect of 10,000 times makes a huge difference in your life. And don't underestimate the power of the accumulation of 10,000 little moments of letting go. Letting go of the thought, letting go of the thought. It's a powerful training to do. And it strengthens that capacity to let go. So that someday in your life, you'll come to a situation where you'll find it's really crucial to let go. And now you, you know the ins and outs of letting go and how it's done. You understand the nature of letting go, what, how to do it. You can train yourself in kindness, in being more generous to yourself, or in friendliness. These are really worthwhile trainings to do. Um, and Buddhism, you know, puts a big, big, big value on these kinds of things. It's one of the ways to give a life meaning and purpose is to engage in training, proper training, um, to develop oneself and grow and change, and you know, not just leave things to be as they are, but to change ourselves to become a better person, a more helpful person for our world. So sometimes that's a phase we're in. We're in the training phase of our life, and. Um, you know, the first day of a retreat probably is more just a getting to know yourself phase and relaxing. 
uh, maybe the second, third day is a chance where you can begin settling in and starting to train yourself, develop more concentration, start stabilizing yourself in the present moment, letting go of things left, you know, the thoughts you have. And then the third phase of practice is the phase of freeing the mind, releasing the heart. And um, it's a little bit dangerous to t- teaching. In this, as I said earlier, uh, you can hear these, these kinds of teachings and try to leapfrog over some of the important personal work that you have to do or self-understanding that has to be done. Uh, as if you know, letting go is the most important thing you're supposed to do. Um, but even so, there's uh, the, the, um, uh, to begin freeing the heart, the mind, from the way that it's contracted and held, stuck, limited, is one of the most beautiful things to do because the liberated heart, the liberated mind, is one of the most beautiful things in the universe. I don't think there's anything more beautiful in the universe than a heart that's been set free. I, think, I believe that one of the great spiritual I don't know, needs or quests or requests that uh, we have is the heart's request to uh, be at peace. Because if the heart's not at peace, it's going to be restless, it's going to be agitated, it's going to be tight or constricted in some way. And as long as the, the heart is contracted or tight or restless, there's a kind of an inherent request in that heart, please, Let's discover how to bring the heart at rest or find, the, find it to be at peace. It's one of the most beautiful things is to have a heart that's at peace with itself, at rest in itself, where there's no more yearning and longing and churning and resisting and defending and, and, um, and um, belittling and criticism and anger, but just the heart at rest in itself. And it's a huge and beautiful task to come to that. And we do that not just for ourselves, but it's a wonderful thing to think you do for others as well. The, um, um, someone has to do this work. <laughs> after, uh, right at, at the, in, 2000, uh, in 2001, right after 9-11, uh, a couple of friends of mine went off to do the three-month retreat at IMS. And, you know, that was such a big event, right, in our psyche. And so I was a little bit concerned about them going off to this three-month retreat right after 9-11. So I went out of my way to find them and I said, you know, by the way, you might have these thoughts that, you know, in the context of what just happened to our country, that maybe you shouldn't go on retreat, you should stay and plug in and be helpful and, you know, do other things. And you might seem selfish to go off into this three-month retreat. And I said, don't, don't, you don't have to think that way. Um, doing something like a, a retreat, like that retreat or this retreat, um, is one of the most significant and profound ways to, uh, I think, help the world that we live in. Because someone has to discover the heart that's at peace. Someone has to discover a path through our suffering, through our attachments, through the unresolved issues of our life. Someone has to show the depth of the fullness of what's possible in terms of healing the fabric of our hearts, of our lives, of our society. And it's phenomenal, you know, uh, this is one of, I, I, as far as I know, what I've discovered so far in my life, this is one of the preeminent places where we can touch the fullness of our life, the fullness of our hearts, the depth of possibility of peace, of love, of compassion. It gives tremendous meaning and value to life. 
even though as you free the heart, you no longer are so concerned about having purpose. Isn't that great to have a great purpose that you don't need anymore? Because the heart's free. So I offer that to you today as a little bit to set the context for the retreat. Uh, I offer it to you, hopefully, uh, to convey my great respect I have for what you're doing here and for you being here in retreat. It's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing you're doing. And um, not always easy to be here. Uh, The rewards can be great. Uh, One of the great rewards is to really get to know yourself, to discover what's here, um, to give give yourself time. Um, Sometimes I've known people who have come here to Spirit Rock who are in their 70s and are surprised to discover that they didn't know themselves. I've been running away from myself for 70 years and finally I've, I've quieted down enough and I'm facing you know, the issues that I haven't been wanting to look at. And it's not that they necessarily have big unresolved issues, but uh, it's that you, it's unresolved. Sometimes what's unresolved or unmet or what needs to be seen or heard or respected or brought forth is not the unresolved issues of your life, not the suffering of your life, but rather it's the parts of you that are most beautiful, most noble, um, and uh, which has been overlooked, which has not been heard or seen or given space for or recognized. Each of you is the most beautiful person. Each of you has within you a tremendous beauty. And if you only knew how beautiful you are, you would fall on your knees and bow to yourself. So may your heart experience the gift of you bowing deeply to it. May you fall in love with your heart. So let's take a few minutes to sit quietly. And sometimes a custom on these retreats to take a minute or two at the end of the retreat to be quiet. It's a way of regathering and resettling to kind of get back into the, the, the flow of your own practice, your own life, your own connectedness here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.